15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode 207. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hi there, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I am quite well, sir. And how are you? Yeah, very. I'm still in one piece, still, you know, most, most bits are working. It's all good. Yeah, well, I'm no longer in isolation. I'm I'm back at work this week, um, back in the radio station, back in my office. Um, it's about as normal as it can get under the circumstances, but uh, it's almost three months since I was actually working from where I used to work, and it's uh, it feels quite strange, even right now, because I'm I'm recording the podcast at the radio station, which I have not done since oh, what March, I guess. Uh, so it's all it's all a little bit weird, and you uh, look. I, I don't mind. I, I don't like admitting to error because you know, for a start, they're very few when it comes to me. But um, I had such a terrible time getting back on the radio and working through the desk after three months of broadcasting from home. Uh, I had to retrain my brain as to how to use the the desk, and um, yeah, there, there, there's an old thing in radio called second day syndrome. Usually when you're doing your first shift at a new radio station or your first shift ever, you're concentrating so much, you don't generally make any mistakes. But then the second day, you're a bit more relaxed and the whole world caves in on you generally. Well, for me this week, it was third day syndrome. <laughs> I was so focused on not having a second day syndrome, I had a third day syndrome. So, oh, well. That's life, isn't it? Now, coming up, Fred, uh, we're, uh, we we talked about uh, whether or not aliens have visited Earth uh, last week. Not that they visited Earth last week, but that's what we discussed last week. Uh, and uh, now, uh, almost uh, becoming a habit of ours, we talk about these things and then a new report pops up that says, oh, well, guess what? So uh, there's a new theory about intelligent life in our galaxy so we'll be looking into that. Uh, there's a, a project that's uh, being slated for the moon uh, where they're going to possibly send a rover to look for water. Uh, there'd be pretty good reasons behind that, and I think I know one of them. And uh, a few questions, one from uh, somebody anonymous. We don't know who this came from, but uh, they were asking about scientific papers. Where do all the papers go? Uh, are they all compiled and put in one data bank or you know, what, what happens to all these scientific research papers? That's a really good question. I would suggest they are used to uh, line garbage bins, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, we're also going to um, answer a question from Dan in California who has simply asked us to discuss the crisis in cosmology. I'm hoping Fred knows what that is. And Mark from Quebec uh, is um, posing a question of us as to what two questions, if we could ask two questions of aliens, what would they be? Wow, I've, I've actually not put much thought into that, but I, I, you know, a couple of things came to mind pretty quickly, so we might go down that road. But I'm sure Fred will have a couple of nice questions for them. Uh, but first, Fred, let's go into this uh, interesting and uh, somewhat fascinating uh, publication that came out last weekend uh, through the astronomical astrophysical journal on the possibility of intelligent life forms existing uh, within our universe or more specifically within our galaxy and the suggestion has been that um, there could be at least 30 which just sort of blows my mind uh, when I first read it I, I thought I'll double check where this is being published and I went mm, okay <laughs> Maybe not, but um, yeah, it, it seems to have a little bit of traction. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a properly refereed publication, as you said. It's in the Astrophysical Journal, and <clears throat> I know the publication you read about it in, which is not the most reliable in the world. But yeah, they got the <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and of course, it's been picked up in the popular science media. <clears throat> um, I'm looking uh, at the story. I, I actually did look at the original paper, but the story. Uh, I think the the um, the best account of it is in the physics.org uh, website, which is a great news website for physics and astronomy news. So basically, what we have here, Andrew, is um, a, a, effectively a rehash of the studies on the Drake equation. 
uh, and basically putting in new, uh, you know, new values. Uh, and you can <laughs> think about the Drake equation, uh, that equation, of course, that, um, that that's designed to give an idea uh, based on probabilities of whether there are any communicable, communicating est- extraterrestrial civilizations within range of us, um, that uh, has, uh, if I remember rightly, seven parameters in it, and they're all guesses, apart from mm. one, which is we now know that probably all stars have planets, uh, which we didn't know when Frank Drake put this together back in 1960, I think it was. So this is a, essentially a re-evaluation, <clears throat> a, re- a re-evaluation of the Drake equation using some new statistical techniques. As I said, I did have a look at the paper. There's a lot in it, uh, a lot of um, assumptions made, of course, as always. Uh, to cut to the chase, um, they come to the conclusion, the authors who are based actually at the University of Nottingham in uh, the UK, uh, the authors come to the conclusion uh, that there could be at least 30 uh, intelligent civilizations throughout our galaxy, in other words, the, the, the sun's home in the universe. Um, so uh, it's, you know, the, the thing is, just to put this in context, probably a year and a half ago, um, a paper came out from the University of Oxford that said that number is actually zero. Uh, so um, that, that it, it, you know, other... Uh, other communicating intelligent life forms are so rare as to be vanishingly small, certainly within our galaxy. And maybe in the distant universe there might be ones, but they're so far away that it, it doesn't matter. So um, in a sense, you, 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 get what you, you, know, you get what you put into it. Um, and you might say it's the same, it's the same sort of uh, mantra that we, we have with computer programs, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out. Um, I'm not saying that these authors have put rubbish in there, but um, mm. uh, it's, uh, you can, with, this, with this particular kind of study, you can, put in, you can kind of put in what you like uh, and you get what you like out. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 there are big uncertainties, of course, even on these values. Uh, the, 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 the scientific paper itself uh, specifies what the uncertainties are in the outcomes. Uh, I actually don't, don't have the paper in front of me, um, but it, they, were, they were large. Uh, but the, the, the sort of best guess estimate, I think if I remember rightly, was 36 communicating uh, extraterrestrial uh, civilizations uh, within our galaxy. Uh, and it's based on things like how long civilizations last and that sort of, you know, those, those things going to it as well. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, I suppose to come up with a number like that, you do have to make assumptions. But uh, would you call them educated guesses or would you take it further and say that there is some uh, science behind it? Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is, it a, is it a reasonable number to, um, to assume? Yeah, that, well, it is. They've certainly put all the right numbers in. Um, and, you know, they've considered things like uh, they've basically taken the age of our sun as being the yardstick and speculating that that's the typical, the 4.6 billion year old uh, solar system. That uh, they they say okay well that's the typical um, length of time it takes to evolve um, a, an intelligent civilization, and then they put in parameters as well like uh, the metallicity content of the sun. Now metallicity to a to an astronomer means anything that's not hydrogen or helium. Uh, so these are the, the you know the, the heavier elements iron silicon. Um, uh, carbon, oxygen, all of those, they're actually considered by astronomers to be metals because they're not hydrogen and helium. And so um, our sun has a particular value of its metal content, uh, and they've basically, um, you know, st- stuck in that as well in their in their theories. They've got various criteria, uh, weak and strong criteria that they apply that uh, that that actually um, uh, give you basically start off with different assumptions about what's happening. <clears throat> mm. So, well, the, so uh, just to, just to just to give you an example of that, so you know what I'm talking about. Their strong criterion uh, puts in the the the, the requirement for uh, a, a star 
to have the metal content same the same as that of the sun, which is actually quite rich uh, in terms of, you know in terms of its other elements, and that's they're the elements that found their way into the earth when the earth was being formed, and they're the things that we regard as our normal environment. So their strong criterion says, okay, um, uh, put put uh, the metal content equal to the sun, and when you do that, you get this 30, 36 active civilizations in the galaxy. Uh, okay. Now, that's a small number compared with the 400 or so billion stars in the galaxy, so it's a needle in a haystack job. But they, uh, in a sense, they're coming out with an encouraging answer to uh, you know, the SETI community, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence community. Could it sort of you know, create a catalyst for what to look for uh, going forward in terms of maybe identifying... Uh, stars with life-bearing planets and yeah, potential well, that, intelligent life. That, that's right. In fact, that's already happening. So, <clears throat> you know, you and I have spoken at length about the kinds of uh, solar systems, the, the kinds of um, stars that might uh, might have uh, planets that could support life. Uh, by far, the commonest type of star in the galaxy is <clears throat> is, a, is a variety of star that's nothing like the sun. These are red dwarfs. Uh, much fainter than the sun, uh, but they're, the, they're also where most of the planets have been found, partly because they're easy to find around red dwarfs. Um, but, you, you know, so you can have a habitable zone in a red dwarf. You could find an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of a red dwarf. But what we don't know too much about is the the effect of, uh, of the, the, the flares on the surface of red dwarfs. They're quite active in the way that the sun's active, but far more so. And so, you know, if you, you find a strong candidate with an Earth-like planet around a red dwarf and then realise that it's being, uh, this planet's being basked in lethal radiation from the star, uh, that tends to put the odds down a bit. So it, it gets more exciting when you find, as we were talking about last time, a, a sun-like star with a planet uh, the size of the Earth in, uh, in, in orbit around it at the right distance, that starts to look a, mo- a lot more promising. And so they're the things that we should be looking for, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I know that a lot of people will be, will be excited by the prospect of uh, possibly 30-plus intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. The downside is that they are suggesting that they're on average 17,000 light years away which ain't ain't close. No, it's not. Uh, Yeah, I um, I meant to mention that. Thank you for bringing that up. Exactly. That, um, that, you know, on average, that's the distance, 17,000 light years. It's a long way. Uh, I mean, uh, the the 4.3 light years to the nearest star is a long way. So when you're talking about that sort of distance, it's difficult. And and it, it, it essentially rules out any kind of, you know, radio transmitted conversation because uh, nobody wants to wait um, 34,000 years to get the answer back uh, if, you, uh, if you send a message there. Um, no, it, definitely not. You know, um, if the, the day comes where we can identify such a planet, it will just add more frustration to the whole thing. <laughs> <won't it? Because laughs> we know you're there, but, um, you know, we're relying on a postal service that's going to take 17,000 years to reach you. Yeah. Sorry okay. about that. <laughs> mm. and, and that's assuming the message doesn't get lost. Well, um, there you go. That's a different issue altogether. <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, report and, and one that's uh, certainly uh, gained traction in the popular media. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to know that it's actually got some substance to it because, uh, as we mentioned at the start, I picked it up in a publication that is of questionable um, accuracy from time to time. So um, I, I'm glad it uh, actually does have some traction. Uh, quite often, uh, some of these outlets only take the sort of the sexy parts of the story and run with that, and the rest of it sort of goes <clears throat> onto the onto the floor, and you never hear about the actual truth. But um, that's that's the media in some respects. So um, you know you've got to uh, take it all with a grain of salt sometimes, and uh, it uh, it answers that great question by Pink Floyd to a certain degree. Is there anybody out there? Uh, possibly so is the answer. <laughs> maybe maybe 30 odd. Which, which is what the answer was before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping it would be 42. I really was. No, 36 is near enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> 
anyway, um, we may hear more of this, uh, but um, yeah, it's it's certainly a very popular area of uh, space science that um, gets the tongues wagging. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy Uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, if you'd like to become a premium member of the Space Nuts fraternity, you can do that uh, by visiting uh, our Supercast website. Uh, There are all sorts of options there for um, buying bundles uh, for a small amount of money per month. Uh, You can combine Space Nuts with Space Time. Uh, for $7 a month through Supercast, or you can go the whole hog for $8 a month, Space Nuts, uh, Space Time, and the Dark Sky Conversations podcasts. They're all uh, part of our stable. And if you go to uh, our Supercast website, you can certainly find out more about that, or you might want to sign on through Patreon and become a patron of the Space Nuts podcast. And the other option is um, to sign on through um, our, uh, our carrier, Acast. Now, you can find all that on our website, um, everything you need to know about becoming a, a patron or a, a supporter. It's not mandatory. As I say every week, you do not have to. We're not telling you to do this. It is it is purely voluntary. But uh, if you do want to kick the can for a few dollars a month, uh, jump on our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and uh, find out more about it there. Now, Fred, let's move on to our next topic, and that is uh, the possibility of putting a rover on the moon to find water. Now, I think I know why they would want to find water on the moon, but... Um, you know, there could be more than one reason for that, but uh, it is um, a pretty exciting project. Is it something that might happen soon? Uh, indeed. it's. Um, I, this has taken me a bit by surprise because I didn't know about this planned mission, um, but this is uh, work that's going to happen in advance of the first uh, lunar landings that uh, NASA will Uh, when they put humans on the moon, the first woman and the next man on the moon, uh, which is scheduled for 2024. what what is being done is a, is a little bit like what was done in the Apollo era before the Apollo landings. A number of spacecraft were sent to the moon 
um, you, you know, basically to land on the surface and check out the conditions. Uh, in particular, whether you'd sink into the <laughs> into the moon dust if you if you were a human trying to walk on the moon. So, so of course, yeah, but they didn't really know what they were that's getting right. themselves into that's in right. some respects. So now, even Buzz Aldrin discussed described the surface as walking on talcum powder, very yeah. slippery. Yeah, very slippery. But thankfully, only an inch or two deep instead of, you know, two metres. Yeah, two metres would have been tricky. Uh, so it's just as well it didn't happen. Um, but, uh, of course, we now know much more about the lunar surface than we did in the 1960s. Uh, and in particular, that there is water um, in a number of, um, you know, uh, what, what, what I might call conditions. There's certainly water ice in some of the deep craters near the South Pole, and that is simply frozen water. But there, there's also hydrated, uh, you know, hydrated um, materials on the moon's surface as well, um, rocks that essentially contain uh, water molecules or hydrated molecules. So uh, you're right about the, re the water as a resource. It's not only drinking water, but uh, also it's about rocket fuel, because if you can uh, dissociate the hydrogen and the oxygen using solar power and electrolysis, then you've got the wherewithal to fuel the rocket without actually having it come back to Earth or sending a tanker up there or whatever. So uh, it's uh, an interesting and um, com you know probably um, uh, interesting scientifically, but also interesting from the point of view of human exploration of the moon to find out where the water is, uh, how much of it there is, what it's like, and all the rest of it. So enter a project called Viper, which is a very snaky name there. Uh, and Viper, yes, Viper is an acronym for Volatiles Investigating Polar exploration rover and volatiles basically means water <laughs> in, fa in fact it, it means in the context that we're hearing it here we we think about the hydrogen the hydrogen's the volatile aspect of it and usually hydrogen detecting hydrogen above a surface tells you that there is probably ice ice down there it's one of the ways that we know about the the ice moons of the outer planets for example so the volatiles investigating polar exploration rover or viper is a nasa project and the idea is that it will go to the south pole of the moon in late 2023, um, in advance of the the first uh, astronauts exploring the moon in the Artemis program, so uh, a really interesting story because um, it, this is uh, it's all being done you know through commercial agencies. Um, the, uh, there is a NASA initiative which is called the CLPS. Uh, which stands for Commercial Lunar Pay Payload Surfaces. I <laughs> nearly said payroll there, the wrong word. Commercial Lunar Payload Services. Uh, that's the initiative that basically brings industry partners into you know, to, to build and deliver actually to the moon instruments and technology and demonstrators and all of that sort of thing. So um, one uh, company in particular, whose name is Astrobotic, great name, uh, they essentially are now responsible for the whole delivery of Viper to the moon uh, and, and its work there, manufacturing it and whole, the, all the rest of it. So they must be uh, you know, very happy about this uh, high-profile project. Viper's uh, mm. uh, it's quite big actually; it's uh, almost half a ton, um, and will work for a hundred days. That's the the idea uh, over um, ten, you know several kilometres around uh, the, the the South Pole region, basically looking at various uh, soil environments. That's uh, as the as the um, you know as the brief mentions. Uh, so um, the even more interesting part of this, though, Andrew, is that uh, it has four instruments on board which will be looking for water. I don't know the details of them. Uh, one of them is certainly a drill uh, that will uh, drill into the surface to, to extract the rock material. But um, what, the, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're going to send uh, three of these instruments in early versions to the moon as soon as next year, um, just in the form of landers. So there'll be, once again, the CLPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative. Uh, they're going to send some of these instruments to the moon, land them on the surface, 
try them out to see how they perform and uh, whether they actually work. Um, and yeah. then that allows the scientists to refine them uh, and, and get them into good order in order to be sent to the moon uh, in, in advance of the, of the moon landing. The great thing about the moon is it's right next door. It's not like sending instruments to Saturn or something like that where you've got a 10-year journey. So you can do this. Mm. You, can, you can send things to the moon, ch- check them out, and then uh, in real time modify what you're, what you're building on the final, the final uh, rover. Uh, and that's what's going to happen. It's a really exciting story. Um, I, I like uh, a comment by uh, T- uh, Thomas Zubuchen, who is NASA's associate in this, uh, sorry, Associate Administrator for Science. He says, we're doing something that's never been done before, testing the instruments on the moon as the rover is being developed. He's, you know, you can't do that with Mars, for example. Um, so Viper and the many payloads we will send to the lunar surface in the next few years are going to help us realize the moon's vast scientific potential. So great mm. stuff. Yes, indeed. And uh, as you and I have discussed, uh, the moon will be a very important platform for missions to Mars. And uh, as we've mentioned today and many times before, uh, the water on the moon could well be uh, a source of uh, rocket fuel. So ultimately, they're going to have to build uh, facilities on the moon to convert that uh, water into uh, into fuel, uh, so they're going to have to probably colonise by the sound of it, or at least um, have some kind of livable facility. Yeah, so that's certainly, uh, I wouldn't call it colonisation, Andrew, but certainly within NASA's brief is permanent occupant, occupancy of the moon, okay. in the same way that there is permanent occupancy of the International Space Station. There's always somebody there, and that's what NASA envisages for the moon. Um, it may well be. So the, the Artemis program, which you and I really talked about, is a multifaceted NASA, um, uh, uh, NASA venture. Uh, one of the important components of it uh, is something called the Lunar Gateway, and that's basically a, a mini International Space Station in orbit around the moon. It's nowhere near as big as the International Space Station, but it's got a similar you know, similar features, including a fairly large, uh, I think there are two of them actually, habitation modules. These are where people can uh, can live for relatively short periods, not, not permanently uh, as we've got with the International Space Station, uh, but uh, you can, you know, it's a staging post, basically. It's a, a, a place where um, the, the, there can be resources managed there. So it may well be, you know, you could imagine that what you do, if you're talking about fueling Mars spacecraft is you you lift the um, the, the the rocket fuel that you've mined from the, the the moon surface up to something like the Gateway Space Station, and that's where the uh, you know where you fuel up your Mars uh, your Mars spacecraft for the longer journey. It's uh, interesting yeah. to to kind of envisage what things might be like in twenty years time. Hope we'll be talking about oh, it as well. <laughs> Oh, oh, look, it's it's so very exciting. Uh, One of the questions that comes to mind about occupying the moon is how long could you stay there before your body deteriorated to the point where coming back to to Earth could actually be dangerous? That's one thing I wonder about because it's low G, muscle wastage. Uh, you, you know, we've seen in the past where uh, long-term uh, time in space has, has caused astronauts to come back in a very, well, cosmonauts more specifically have come back in a weakened state. So uh, you'd have to put a, a time limit on your exposure to those uh, kinds of environments, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think you can, that particular one, you can deal with with exercise and they certainly do that on the International Space Station with several hours a day of exercise uh, and the standard, you know, the standard duration of, a, of a, what they call an expedition on the space station is six months. Uh, so um, that's probably okay, but what's a bigger problem is the radiation exposure that you get on the moon's surface because... I always forget that one. Yeah, but we, yes. No, no protection, no magnetic field, uh, no, no atmosphere. So you've got the, the sun's radiation in all its forms is beating down on the lunar surface. So you've really got to think about putting your astronauts underground uh, 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 or at least shielding them as, uh, uh, to as high degree as possible. So I think that might be the limiting factor on the length of a mission. Put, put, a, 
maybe put a lid on a on a crater. Uh, that might work. Well, in fact, people have talked about there are lava tubes on the moon, uh, as there yes. are here on Earth, and um, certainly people have talked about getting into those tunnels where there's probably a bit more protection from the radiation. Mm. No, we will watch with interest, but the rover project, uh, Viper, sounds like uh, one giant leap forward for uh, humankind in uh, making our next step beyond the planet. Uh, You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. A shout out as always to our social media followers, whether you follow the Space Nuts podcast on Facebook or whether you're a member of the Space Nuts podcast group where you can all get together and talk to each other. Uh, That group just grows in leaps and bounds. Uh, You can also subscribe to the podcast through YouTube or your favorite podcast distributor, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Podbean, uh, the list is is long, uh, iHeartRadio, etc. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Twitter. So just uh, do a bit of a search for Space Nuts through your favorite platform and, um, and make sure you follow us that way as well. Now, uh, Fred, we've got some, uh, some questions um, to answer this week. Uh, one that's come from an anonymous source, but uh, one that you did want to tackle Uh, And it's all about uh, where do all the papers go? Uh, Hey, guys, I just discovered your podcast this week and I've already sunk roughly 12 hours into it. Absolutely loving it. Excellent topics and the delivery keeps me captivated. Uh, We'll slow down a bit in that case. Uh, I was just wondering about all these papers that get published. How does one get their hands on them? Is there some sort of central hub they're all uploaded to or do we need to already know about them and search them out? Thanks. That yeah, is a good a, question. It is a great and question. And, um, not something that's ever crossed my mind, but you hear about them all the time in the news. A new paper's been released that says there are at least 30 alien civilizations uh, living in our galaxy. Exactly. Where do they go? <laughs> so, the, the, I mean, traditionally, of course, they were literally uh, papers published in journals. Uh, and um, most uh, university departments of astronomy and, and observatories uh, had libraries where these journals were assembled. And if you wanted to read somebody's paper, you had to go and look at it physically. But now, of course, they're all electronically online. We're in a, in a totally different world from when I started as a, as a researcher. Um, the, the, and, and it, but it's still a, a relatively complex question. So in astronomy, um, the, there are several different journals. Um, they still exist as journals, even though the, I don't know how many of them still print things. They, they're actually mostly online. Um, but the main ones for astronomers are in the United States, the Astrophysical Journal and the Astronomical Journal. Uh, in Europe, it's Astronomy and Astrophysics. In the UK, it's the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. <laughs> and then, in, in, you know, different countries have different uh, journals. We in Australia have the publications of the Astronomical Society of Australia, PASA. Uh, but there are other ones, many, many other ones. Icarus is a planetary journal, um, the publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, PASP, uh, there are dozens and dozens of these. And of course, really key papers go uh, not just in the astronomy journals, but in the, the major science journals, of which I guess the two most important uh, are Nature in the UK and Science in the USA. Um, however, um, you don't have to go hunting all these different journals uh, if you want to sort of find out what's going on. Because there is um, a repository uh, of, uh, uh, of papers. People tend these days to upload their papers once they're, uh, they should wait till they're accepted and peer reviewed, but sometimes they do it in advance of that. They upload them to a site which is called the archive site. So it's archive, but the CH in the middle is an X. Uh, because that's what uh, the Greek chi is. So it's it looks like A-R-X-I-V, uh, and that's the archive site. And if you if you do a search on that, that will tell you. Um, it's, it's operated through universities, uh, but if you do a search, just look for archive, 
Um, then you're faced with every astronomical paper that's kind of coming out, and there are thousands of them a week. Uh, so it would help if you knew, if you were going to have a look, who the author was for whatever it is you're wanting to look for or what the topic is, because you can put those in the in the archive search engine. So um, it's uh, fairly daunting, and you often will find you'll, you'll go to a paper and it is, it's full of the technical terms, and that's what it should be because it's, you know, this is front leading-edge research. Um, what uh, often... Uh, makes it more palatable for everyday readers, and that includes, you know, people in the media and commentators like you and I, Andrew. Is the press releases that are often uh, uh, issued by um, by universities when a particularly significant result comes out. But once again, uh, the, the problem is searching for them. Yes, well, it's good to know there is, um, you know, some central process that uh, puts them all together not maybe every single one all in one place but it sounds like you know there are collectives of them and they are accessible so you just got to know what you're looking for and uh, do some searching but uh, yeah science nature and archive sound like three very good options you got any in those Fred any papers um um, yes, uh, I, I, I do, um, mainly because uh, of being part of some big projects that I've been involved with, in particular the RAVE project, the Radial Velocity Experiment. Um, mm. That produced well over 100 papers, and because I was uh, in charge of the observations and actually gathering the data, <laughs> I very kindly get um, to be an author on many of those, uh, usually at the end, because W is somewhere near the end of the alphabet and then of, often in alphabetical order. Uh, but but uh, uh, So that's the, the recent ones are certainly um, because of those big surveys. But, yeah, I, I had papers in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, Astronomical Journal, Astrophysical Journal, and I think one in nature. I think I've only got my name on one nature paper, and it was by 1978 or something like that. That's fine, Fred. Once is good enough, in my opinion. I've only ever won golf cha- won one golf championship, but it's, you know, they can't take it away from me. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and, and there are advantages to being further down the alphabet. Um, my surname starts with D, and that always put me at the front of the line for the school dentist. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. I always felt like the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, but time, anyway, I think. Sorry. By the time the dentist got to W, they'd given up, which is why I'm still paying the price of bad school dentistry. <laughs> very, very possible. Uh, thanks to whoever sent that question in, because it uh, sort of was a, a bit of an eye opener for uh, for a lot of people. I expect. Let's move on to our um, next question. It's an audio question. This one comes from Dan in California. Hi, this is Dan from California. I have a question about the crisis in cosmology. Could you explain to us exactly what that is and why all of a sudden it's becoming more of a topic? Love the show. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Dan. Uh, The crisis in cosmology, Fred. Uh, Is there a crisis in cosmology? Um, yeah, yes, in in a sense there is, um, because, uh, you know, it's certainly in the media, you Google crisis in cosmology and you'll find plenty of stuff on it. But um, look, I've been around long enough, Andrew, as you just heard about papers published in the 70s, to know that the current crisis is nothing like what it was uh, 50 years ago, um, when the, the f- absolute fundamentals of the universe were really not well known. Uh, And what this all centers around is the Hubble constant. And the Hubble constant is basically the rate of expansion of the universe. Uh, And it's it's constant at any given time, but it changes over time. Now, back in the 70s, the problem was finding what the constant was uh, in, you know, now it, it didn't worry about the time in the past we we needed to know what it was what the hubble constant is at the present time and the there were two uh, camps of scientists um, and their values for the hubble constant differed by 100% uh, let me tell you that the hubble constant is usually quoted in units of kilometers per second per megaparsec so kilometers per second is a speed and that's the speed of recession of galaxies and a megaparsec is a million parsecs a parsec is 
the the unit used by astronomers. Uh, it's rather more than three light years. So a megaparsec is, I think, about three three uh, th- thousand. Sorry, uh, 3.2 million light years. Um, so, it, and, and what that's saying is uh, the further out into space you look, the faster the galaxies are going away. And that's just a property of the expansion of the universe. But that's what this mm-hmm. constant says. So, um, when I was a lad, a young astronomer, the two different camps. Uh, one group were favouring a, a value of the Hubble constant of around 50 kilometres per second per, per megaparsec, and the other uh, was around 100 kilometres per second per megaparsec. Um, De Vaucouleur and Sandage are the two names that come to mind in connection with those in the reverse order of what I've just told you. De Vaucouleur was in favour of the higher value. But now... Um, so one of the reasons why the Hubble telescope was launched was to sort this out because you can uh, you can measure the Hubble constant by looking at what we call standard candles and a standard candle is just something whose brightness you know uh, whose intrinsic brightness you know and so you can essentially measure how far away it is very accurately and the standard candles that were used uh, were used by the Hubble telescope were Cepheid variable stars, which we know about having a you know a standard brightness, um, and that closed down the uh, you know the the, the, the answer, uh, increased the accuracy, uh, and in fact, what was curious was what came out of that work was that the Hubble constant is basically the average of the two earlier values that we had. So some people saying 50, some people saying 100, actually it was 75. Um, You know, it's exactly halfway between. And that's still about the standard answer. And it comes from not just these variable stars, but uh, it comes also from uh, looking at supernova explosions, uh, stars which blow up uh, and achieve a standard brightness at their peak. It comes from um, a process called gravitational lensing and the way um, we see dif- distant quasars uh, lensed uh, by the gravitation of intervening galaxies. So all that supports a value which is it's about 73 to 74 kilometres per second per megaparsec. But, wow. but the problem but. is... That, and and you know that's all good. That's that's one side of the argument. Where the crisis comes is when you study uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, the flash of the Big Bang, uh, because we can see those ripples in that flash of the Big Bang that tell us about the way the universe looked then, and you can actually deduce from that what today's Hubble constant is, and you get. A different answer, 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And that is outside the experimental errors. And so what it suggests is that there is something wrong with our standard model of the universe, uh, some aspect of it that is not working. And that is the crisis in cosmology. But as I said, compared with what the crisis was like back in the 70s, it's nothing. <laughs> um, yeah. That's good well, agreement. Um, interesting. When you do a Google search under crisis in cos- cosmology, you get 3,250,000 results. There you go. <laughs> so, yes, it's yeah. not a very common topic, yeah. really, in the scheme of things. <laughs> but uh, uh, thank you, Dan, for your question. Hopefully we've um, managed to not resolve the crisis in cosmology, but at least uh, resolve your um, wondering of it. Uh, let's move on to our next question, Fred. This is Mark in Quebec. He's got an observation about um, something we discussed last week in terms of uh, – uh, whether or not alien civilizations have visited Earth, but then he, he follows it up with uh, inter- interesting questions or asking questions. We'll get to that in a tick. <laughs> Hi, Fred and Andrew. My name is Mark. I'm uh, recording from uh, Sherbrooke in the province of Quebec in Canada. Uh, I really, really do like and love your podcast, but especially the last one when you talked about the possibility that... Um, alien civilization visited us. Um, Well, I just wanted to point out the fact that, you know, considering the level of technology required to travel to our solar system and even more in our galaxy, why would they spend so much time and energy to get to us, uh, to get what exactly? Um, Plastic polluted seawater? I mean, what could they find here that they couldn't 
not find elsewhere. Um, I mean, if they can get to us, they probably already found numerous other civilizations in their galaxy neighborhood, don't you think? Uh, okay, now, uh, Fred and Andrew, I would still like to know about you. Let's say you have the chance to meet real aliens, and you can each ask them two questions. What would you ask them? Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow, thanks, Mark. Um, putting us on the spot a bit. Uh, actually, um, one thing you said, you know, what would they find here that they wouldn't find anywhere else? They'd find us, is my answer to that particular angle on aliens visiting our planet. I think that's why they would want to come here. They wouldn't come here to, you know, do anything else, I wouldn't imagine, unless they wanted to take it all. But um, they, they'd, they'd find us, wouldn't they, Fred? Uh, That'd be a good reason. If we're still around then. Um, yeah, look, so, uh, you, you know, exploration of the universe, I guess, is the, is the answer. Um, it's what um, uh, Enrico Fermi postulated in his Fermi, Fermi par paradox. He, he said that if, if uh, civilizations have the wherewithal to travel about the, the universe, they will do. Uh, and, um, you know, even if they're just kind of randomly looking at planets uh, to, 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 to catalogue what they're like close up, uh, that might still bring them here. Um, so Fair who's going to go first, Andrew, about what we <laughs> well, look, I'm going, to, I'm going to give the lame question, so I'll go first because yours will be much more astute. But um, I, did, I did put a bit of thought into it, um, and, and I think the first question I would want to ask them is, how were you created? How do you, how do you come to be? Uh, which would also angle me into the God question. So I, I would sort of um, firstly, you know, how did you evolve? How did you become what you are? Uh, why do you exist? What were the circumstances? How did you develop as a species? And do you believe in God, by the way? I mean, you know, we do, but, um, you know, <laughs> in general terms. Uh, that would be probably the, one of the first things, you know, a question without notice. Uh, that I would want an answer to. Um, you know, how did you come to be what you are? Uh, I would really want to know that. I would also want to know, um, and I would ask the question straight out, is your civilization successful? And I ask that because I know of, and we all know of the troubles we face here on earth with each other, uh, the, the disputes over territory, the disputes over resources, the constant fighting over borders, the ideology that gets in the, in the way of humanity. Uh, I would want to know if they have similar issues uh, in their home world. Do they have uh, the same kinds of um, civil crises that, uh, that we have been facing for thousands of years uh, and what we could learn from each other as a consequence of that. Uh, if they did have a successful civilization, what could we learn that might actually make our lives better or vice versa? Maybe they've got troubles that we can resolve. Uh, it, it, those, are, those are a couple of areas that I would uh, definitely want to uh, focus on and, and learn more about from them. Um, those are just questions off the top of my head, uh, probably more journalistic than intelligent, but uh, I, those, are, those are a couple of things I'd want to know. Plus, plus, I've got to throw in a third one. What are you currently paying for, for petrol? Because we pay way too much here. Um, you know, how did you afford to get here? Because petrol's not cheap. Um, to which that, their answer would be, uh, what's petrol? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Or gas, if, uh, for, for you North Americans. What, what are you currently paying for gas? Yeah, gas. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, that, th those two questions about how they were created and, uh, you know, is their civilization a success would be my two off-the-cuff questions. Fred, well, over to you. I think they're really profound, Andrew. I think you're underselling yourself. Um, because they're right, science fiction. <laughs> yeah, science fiction writer. That's right. And and mm -hmm. I suppose um, you know, uh, in my heart of hearts, but your first one would be similar to to what I'd like to know. Is sort of what's it all about, and what 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 are we missing? Um, but uh, to come back to just to focus on two questions, <laughs> the first one would be: so what about this crisis in cosmology? <laughs> What's the answer there? <laughs> uh, I should have known you'd go there. 
Um, well, that, that, well, I can understand that, Fred, because from your point of view, you would want to see what they they have learned about the exactly. universe. You want to see if up. there's uh, some you know, compare notes. Yeah, and the, and in fact, this, my second one would be along the same lines. How did you get here? Come on, what's the what's the secret of your uh, your um, flying saucers or whatever brought you here? Um, I, I would definitely be, be flying saucers, Fred. No, no doubt. Yeah. I'd, but I'd like to know how they work and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, yes, you know, the, the, anybody who can come along and tell me what the universe is for, I would be very interested to hear the answer. <laughs> I, I suspect any intelligent species out there, the 30 of them in our galaxy, probably yeah. don't know the answer to that either. No, they probably don't. They'd be in the same boat as we are. Uh, it's just, Yeah, it's really, you know, I mean, I think questions like this are really good to ask because they – they they kind of focus you on what you really want to know about and what you know what what are the things that really um, that really in in a way trouble us uh, in in terms of our understanding of who and what we are and where we fit into the grand scheme of things. So yeah, yeah I hope they turn up and I hope they turn up soon because I want to know the answers to these questions very quickly. I dare say the question list would go beyond two. <laughs> yeah, um, but. Uh, Maybe maybe the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook can um, can throw that one into the mix and and have a chat about it because I reckon I reckon that would be a long, a very long uh, topic uh, on the many topics that are discussed by the group. But uh, if you're not a member of the Space Nuts podcast group, you ought to join because uh, they, they do have a lot of fun. Fred and I tend to keep out of it, but um, because it's all for you. But uh, occasionally we'll chime in with a a comment or two. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for that question, Mark, because uh, it is really one that uh, gets gets the brain going, and I do enjoy those kinds of conversations, as does Fred. Um, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Fred, thank you so much, sir. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. It's been a very good morning's work, and uh, thank you for your time and your company, and thanks to everybody who listens to us. Uh, it's always great to know that there are people out there. See you soon. Okay, thanks, Fred. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, um, the the key member of the Space Nuts podcast team. Uh, one more thing before I go, and don't forget to visit our website. We've got a new URL. It's called spacenutspodcast.com, uh, and we're still building it, but it's uh, it's sort of reaching a stage where it's it's effective now. Uh, so on the homepage, you'll be able to uh, listen into all our episodes uh, down the list. Uh, but across the top, there are little uh, tabs. Um, you, you know, we have a blog. There's a bit of information about our background. There's the Astronomy Daily uh, news page that we have where we just keep adding all the stuff that's coming out. Uh, through journals, a lot of them, uh, and papers. Um, and uh, you can subscribe to the website. Uh, there's even a tab there where you can buy some books, apparently. I don't know what kind of books they are, but um, they are there. And, and the Space Nuts shop is up there as well. So uh, spacenutspodcast.com, visit us soon. Uh, in the meantime, uh, stay well, and we will catch you on the next edition of the Space Nuts Podcast. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.